Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist, Jay Carson. Though this week, I am again attempting to stumble through the podcast all on my own. This is uh, because I was away uh, for most of last week at the Midwest Political Science Association conference and driving back from that conference on Sunday, and so Jay and I could not record our show as we normally do on Sunday. Why was I there? I was there to uh, present a paper on what happens if you expose, force, I guess you could say, students to either watch The Daily Show or read The New York Times. Um, And as would probably surprise no one, if you force people to watch The Daily Show on a regular basis, they tend to end up a little more cynical about politics than if they uh, read the New York Times. So not really a surprising finding. It's kind of what I expected to find. Uh, And it did actually end up uh, helping to pay my way to Chicago, one of my favorite cities, where I got to uh, do the whole political science conference thing, which was pretty good. In any case, I am here on Monday. This is actually take two of the podcast. I made the mistake of recording the first one after way too much coffee and then listening to uh, what I'd recorded, uh, being horrified at the results. So yes, this actually is the improved version. I know that's hard to believe. Anyway, bear with me for, I'm guessing, probably around 20 minutes, and Jay will in fact be back next week. I think we all agree that that's a good thing. So this week's stories, I'll be looking at Hillary Clinton who threw her hat into the ring, announcing finally that she is an official candidate for the 2016 Democratic nomination. Also, Marco Rubio, who for some reason I always want to call Mario. I'm not really sure why. Any, in any event, uh, Mario, Marco, Marco Rubio also announced his candidacy, although for the Republican nomination. And I'll talk about why he doesn't really have much of a shot, at least not in 2016. On to foreign policy, we'll go back to Iran and uh, why President Obama agreed to concessions with Congress on the pending Iran agreement and why I think actually an agreement might be less likely now than ever. And then finally, Cuba where President Obama is moving forward with his plan to normalize relations with Cuba, and that would be the first time we've had anything approaching normal relations with them since sometime in the early 1950s. And as you might expect, Republicans really hate this idea, which I think is a most excellent idea, actually. Okay, so our lead story for this week is Hillary Clinton who announced that she would, in fact, be seeking the Democratic nomination for the presidency. As Hillary Clinton put it herself, everyday Americans need a champion, and I want to be that champion. And immediately on hearing that, I thought to myself, what exactly is an everyday American? 
Can you be an every other day American or maybe alternate weekends American? It seemed like an odd phrase. I'm sure it was focus group tested and pulled out the uh, out the wazoo. Uh, apparently, her campaign says that uh, normally they'd use the term middle class, but that term no longer connotes a stable life. And I don't know exactly what that means either, but it is everyday Americans, I guess, from here on out until the uh, focus groups tell Clinton's people differently. And so if you are, in fact, an everyday American, Hillary Clinton does want to be your champion. Now, if you're a Democrat, Hillary Clinton will almost certainly be your nominee. Uh, There are a few other people that the Democrats have talked about, maybe running. Uh, Joe Biden's name comes up a lot, but right now he's at around 15% in the polls. And by way of comparison, Clinton's at around 60%. So Joe Biden, I don't think so. Uh, I think he'd be a fun president, uh, but uh, that's not going to happen for old Joe. Some Democrats, the more liberal wing of the party, are interested in Elizabeth Warren running against Hillary. And there are some Democrats uh, who feel that Hillary Clinton is really too centrist, too close to Wall Street and that sort of thing. And Elizabeth Warren certainly is not too close to Wall Street. But she also is polling very, very low, right around Biden-type numbers. And she has announced that she will not be running uh, either. There is one potential candidate who might at least make a little bit of noise on the Democratic side, and that's Martin O'Malley, former governor of Maryland. He will be running to Hillary Clinton's left, and he's probably going to announce sometime this week, but it's very unlikely he's going to gain any traction or do much of anything. And part of the reason why Clinton is the prohibitive favorite to win the Democratic nomination is she's won what's called the invisible primary. The invisible primary is the period before candidates start formally announcing that they're running. And in this period, they're, uh, they're courting donors looking for money because it costs a lot of money to run a presidential campaign. Uh, Clinton and – I'm sorry, Obama and Romney last time out raised around a billion dollars apiece. And this year's campaign, this this campaign is going to be even more expensive. And Hillary Clinton's just absolutely cleaned up on this, uh, so kind of sucked all the sucked all the money out of the room essentially. And so, Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee. Now, when we move from the Democratic nomination to the general election, the picture becomes a little less clear. There are some people who are saying that, though she's a shoe-in, she's a lock. If you take a look at the polls, putting uh, Clinton against uh, a generic Republican or any other Republicans who've announced that she's absolutely trouncing them. That's true, but presidential polls that are this far out mean essentially nothing. And if we look back in, in history, we see this again and again and again. So you can ignore those polls. Anyone who tells you that Hillary Clinton is a shoe-in either does not know what they're talking about or is trying to sell you on something or other. So what's going to really matter? Well, political scientists will tell you that for the most part, the campaigns don't matter that much. And even the candidates don't matter that much. And the reason why is because by the time you get to the general election for president of the United States – the primary process has already weeded out the really, really crappy candidates. So essentially, you have two reasonably good candidates running reasonably competent campaigns where 80% or so of the voters have already made up their minds. So it 
the, the campaign stuff, not going to make a lot of difference, except that when it's close. And this may be a very close election, actually. The kind of things that do matter for presidential elections, more than anything else, the economy. So where's the economy at now? It's kind of so-so. Uh, you know, where's it going to be in, was it like 19 months or something like that? Who knows? So right now, the best thing you can best guess you can make is it's going to be kind of a toss-up. Honestly, if I were betting, I would say Hillary Clinton has probably a slight advantage going into the, uh, you know, into the contest, but uh, what do I know? Anyway, moving to the Republican side of things. Also earlier this week, Marco Rubio announced that he would be seeking the Republican nomination for president, joining two other already announced candidates, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz. Jeb Bush almost certainly will be joining them at some point in the very near future. Uh, he announced this in Miami, uh, where he uh, where he is a senator from. Where is he? Where he is a senator from? Yeah, that sounds right. Saying that, um, not really exactly mentioning Hillary Clinton, but kind of alluding to her, saying that just yesterday, a leader from yesterday began a campaign for president by promising to take us back to yesterday. Yesterday is over, and we are never going back. So pretty clearly, it seems that Marco Rubio is interested in moving forward and breaking with the policies of yesterday, at least rhetorically he's saying that. And I started thinking about, well, what does he mean by that? Well, he kind of doesn't really want to break with current policies when it comes to Cuba or Iran or Israel. What about domestic policy? I thought, well, he kind of likes the old policies on same-sex marriage and Marijuana legalization and climate change and abortion and guns. and So I actually don't know what he means by this, but I guess it sounds good, certainly. Maybe he's, he's trying to point out that, hey, I'm a lot younger than Hillary Clinton and I represent the future in some vague, ill-defined way, I guess in the same way that Hillary Clinton is the champion of everyday Americans, whatever that means. So Marco Rubio. Does he have a chance? Uh, not really, I don't think. One of his big problems is he seems to be everybody's second choice. Uh, he's kind of a moderate conservative, at least what we call that these days. Um, so there's no one who really likes him a whole lot, at least not enough people. And a real big problem is that there's already another moderate conservative who's not really in the race but will be in the race, that, of course, is Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush is not only more experienced and better connected than Marco Rubio, he's already raised a lot more money than Marco Rubio. So I think if that's the sort of person that comes out of the, out of the campaign, out of the primaries, and I think that the, Democrat, that the Republicans will nominate, uh, in the end, a moderate conservative, I think that moderate conservative is going to be Jeb Bush and not Marco Rubio. Though, moving on to the future, I think if it's Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, that's my guess, Hillary Clinton probably ekes out a victory. Then maybe in 2020 or something like that, maybe that's Rubio's time, but obviously that's a long, long way off. Though, this time out, I do not see Marco Rubio winning the nomination. Though, uh, welcome to the party anyway, Marco Rubio. Moving on to foreign policy. Iran. 
we've talked about Iran before in the show, and there have been some developments on the domestic front with this, where early last week the White House gave in to congressional demands for a voice in these negotiations by announcing that President Obama would sign a bill that would give Congress a say in approving a final agreement. And that final agreement is scheduled to be completed by June 30th of this year. Now, this bill that President Obama said he would sign requires him to send the details of the final agreement, including all classified materials, to Congress, and then it would prevent him from lifting any sanctions for the next 30 days pending congressional approval. Now, if, if Congress approves or does nothing, that's fine. He, the president can go on and lift the sanctions on Iran. If Congress chooses to disapprove the agreement, then President Obama can veto that. And, of course, he certainly would veto that. And then if Congress wanted to override that, that would require a two-thirds majority. And that's probably not all that likely. So, in a sense, this doesn't really change much. Congress has always had the option to pass a law to restrict Obama's ability to make a deal with the Iranians. And President Obama has always had the option to veto that. Congress has always had the option to override with two-thirds. The only real change is that President Obama agreed to that 30-day waiting period. Uh, there's another minor change in that under the agreement, he, would, he agrees to send periodic reports to Congress talking about whether Iran's playing nice and doing what they said they would do and that sort of thing. But there are no – there's nothing linked to that. It's just kind of a report. So the thinking – is basically I think that President Obama felt that if he didn't agree to some sort of even minor concessions, he might not be able to keep enough Democrats on his side to override a veto, and a veto that would essentially scuttle the negotiations. So I think he was giving a little to preserve the possibility that there would be a deal with uh, uh, with Iran. And honestly, I don't think it's that that big of a big of an issue. Except it seems to me more and more likely now that there may not even be a final agreement with the Iranians. And that's because of some things that uh, Iranian leaders have been saying recently. Uh, right, after the, right after the framework was announced a few weeks back, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, Khamenei, Khamenei that, that guy, said that uh, sanctions would have to be lifted immediately after an agreement was signed. Then the Iranian president said, well, maybe sanctions could be lifted right after the agreement went into effect because there's usually a delay between those two things. Now, the Obama administration position has been on this all, all along, that sanctions would be lifted in stages as Iran demonstrated that they were, in fact, holding up their end of the bargain. Because the concern here is that what Iran will do is once the sanctions are lifted, they have access to billions of dollars that they previously haven't had access to because of these financial sanctions, these economic sanctions. So what's to prevent them if they have no intention of curtailing their nuclear program at all to sign an agreement, have the sanctions immediately lifted, get billions of dollars because of the sanctions being lifted? And sure, even if we put the sanctions back into effect because they're not abiding by their part of the agreement – they still get that period of time where they have billions of dollars for essentially doing nothing. And that would be a pretty bad deal for us. And that seems to me to be a legitimate concern, more and more of a legitimate concern. Now, maybe 
the Iranians are just saying this because it's a negotiation tactic and they have to kind of present a very strong front because they have some domestic concerns about their own hardliners. And, and maybe that's the case because honestly, if you have no intention of abiding by an agreement, usually you don't try to telegraph that before the agreement, even indirectly. So I can't say I'm optimistic about this actually happening. Uh, the the skeptic in me, I, I, I guess, is coming out. And I think that uh, this is not necessarily going to work out the way I think many of us would hope it would work out. And uh, but, but we'll see. Uh, it's a long way till June 30th, but I am not nearly as optimistic about this actually happening or if it does happen, this uh, being something where uh, the United States ends up with egg on its face. And President Obama, who, of course, is desperate to have some sort of thing come out of foreign policy that's not make him look awful, and so far that has not happened, uh, is, I think, very interested in having a foreign policy victory. I just don't really see it happening here with Iran, unfortunately. But maybe, maybe he gets a foreign policy victory in Cuba, where he's announced that he is going to take Cuba off of the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, and this comes after uh, a meeting the previous week with uh, the president of Cuba, Raul Castro. And this is the first uh, face-to-face discussions we've had between our president and the president of Cuba in, oh, since the 1950s, I believe. And you might recall, you might have heard in the early 1950s, the uh, uh, Fidel Castro, that's Raul's older brother, led a revolution that ousted the corrupt and very U.S.-friendly Batista regime. Uh, And if you are not familiar with that, what you should really do, you could either read the Wikipedia article on it, I'm sure there's one, or even better, watch The Godfather Part 2, which really tells you everything you need to know about uh, that, and it's probably one of the best movies ever. Anyway, so we have not had diplomatic relations with Cuba since the 1950s. Our embassy has been boarded up. We've had a trade embargo on them since the 1950s, and pretty much that trade embargo is a unilateral. Everyone else has kind of moved on from this. Why? Because our embargo for decades now, we've known it's been a stupid and ridiculous and worthless thing that is not accomplishing anything at all. So why do we have a stupid, ridiculous, and worthless policy? It's not accomplishing anything at all. Geez, we have so many of these things. There's actually a good uh, domestic politics reason for this, and that is there are a lot of Cubans in Florida, a lot of Cubans who really, really hate the Castro regime for understandable reasons, actually. And Florida, of course, is an extraordinarily important state in presidential politics. It tends to be a swing state, meaning it tends to you know go between Democrats and Republicans. And there are a lot of votes, a lot of people, a lot of electoral votes in Florida. So uh, taking a hard line against Castro tends to be a smart move for a lot of politicians, and so especially politicians who want to be president. So that's essentially why that happens. So I think opening up relations with Cuba is absolutely a good thing. President Obama can reestablish formal relations on his own, but what he can't do on his own is lift the trade embargo. That For that, he needs congressional approval, and he's not going to get congressional approval for that, certainly. But uh, I think it's a move in the right direction, and uh, maybe one of the few foreign policy uh, initiatives in the Obama administration that I can actually look at and say, wow, this does not actually stink. So that's kind of a nice change of pace, I think. Okay, 
Moving on, there is one other story I wanted to mention. I saw that uh, Representative Rod Bloom, you may never have heard of Representative Rod Bloom. I certainly didn't until this week. It's because he's a freshman from Iowa, I believe. He introduced a bill called the No Golden Parachutes for Public Service Act, and I really liked the name of that bill. What that bill would do is it would ban former members of Congress from lobbying their ex-colleagues, ban them for life. Now, currently, there is a ban of one year for members of the House of Representatives and a ban of two years for senators. In other words, if you leave the House or you leave the Senate, um, you cannot, in the case of the House, you cannot lobby your former colleagues for a year. In the case of the Senate, you cannot lobby your former colleagues for two years. Why is the difference? I guess because the Senate's twice as important. That's what senators would tell you, certainly. Uh, But the idea behind this is to stop or to slow what's called the revolving door, where people in government leave government positions, which don't pay very well anyway, get far better positions trying to influence their former friends and colleagues. They might not be their former friends. They are their former colleagues, certainly. And the thinking is by having that one or two-year cooling-off period, then after a year or two, Uh, What you know and who you know is kind of diminished in importance, and so therefore you can't necessarily use what you've learned on the public dime to kind of enrich yourself in special interest, that sort of thing. So you would think, well, if you like this kind of idea, that banning them for life, that sounds like a pretty reasonable and a good reform. And on the surface, yeah. But it's one of these things that I think is what I would call more the appearance of reform than actual reform. Because all this would ban is what's called direct lobbying, which means that you can't for, you, you, you're not able to lobby, to register as a lobbyist and formally meet with your colleagues, your former colleagues, and talk to them about pending legislation. But what it doesn't ban, what it really can't ban because of the First Amendment, is being an advisor. In other words, a lobbying firm can certainly hire a former member of Congress and and they can serve in an advisory capacity saying, well, you should talk to X and so-and-so and and my former colleague about this and that and that sort of thing. Not only that, but think about how incredibly difficult this sort of thing would be to enforce. How do we know if a former member of Congress is talking to one of his former colleagues? Well, we don't, uh, unless the NSA is bugging their phone calls, which, okay, maybe, but There's no real way to know. So why would Congress pass a law that essentially is impossible to enforce and that has a huge, huge loophole that you could drive a truck through? Well, because members of Congress like the idea of being able to make big money as lobbyists. In fact, that's the single the single most likely job for a former member of Congress to take after that person leaves Congress is as a lobbyist, and they can make a lot of money doing that. So Why would you cut off that future source of income? Well, you wouldn't. But what you could do is make it look like you're trying to do something, a good government reform, that sort of thing. That This is really, really common. We see this in campaign finance all the time, the appearance of reform rather than reform. And as long as Congress passes the laws that dictate what Congress gets to do and not do, of course we're going to see that sort of thing. We shouldn't expect anything more. All right, then. I see I managed to blunder my way through a little over 20 minutes. Uh, and this is it for this week's episode. Jay will be back next week. Thank God. Um, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. You can follow us throughout the week also on the Politics Guys blog, 
which you can find on our website, politicsguys.com. Also, we're on Twitter. We tweet all the time. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back on Sunday with another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.